Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex to be considered before becoming a client of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Securities are offered through HBEC Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Annex Wealth Management and HBEC are unaffiliated. This program may contain forward-looking statements which may not come true. Please consult with an advisor about your specific situation. Taking the mystery out of investing with answers to your financial questions. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald from Annex Wealth Management on WTMJ. Know the difference, Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. It is Team Tech Trust. You can start at AnnexWealth.com. Click the Get Started button for the free portfolio analysis. Also, a free annuity analysis. Got one of those things, and you wonder, just what exactly does this do? Since I got sold it 10 years ago, uh, you can do that at AnnexWealth.com. I'm Danny Clayton. Good morning, Mark Oswald. Good morning. Derek Felsky, good to see you. Good morning. And uh, the king of Valentine's Day, Dave Spano. Yeah. Were, were you? That's a setup. Well, yeah, we, uh, we had a dozen roses in dinner, I think. Yeah, thank I did you, okay. by the way. Thanks. Not, not wasn't to you, fellow. Good man. So oh, what, a, what a week, huh? What a week. So we ended Friday up 444 points, and uh, it really started to pick up steam uh, in the afternoon as we headed into the close. But uh, President Trump was on the Rose Garden on Friday talking about a lot of things. But uh, one of the things for sure that came out of that was it looks like there could possibly be a resolution to the U.S.-China trade dispute. And, in fact, he said during that speech that even if we get to the date, the March 1st date, that those tariffs may not be imposed. The market sure like that news, Derek. You know, it, it's interesting to me because it seems like every every couple of weeks we get, you know, this sort of commentary and the market takes it positively as opposed to in December when every news headline was viewed negatively. And at some level, I feel like we're almost overly discounting the successful resolution of this thing because at the end of the day, it's about intellectual property theft and being on a level playing field in China. So I view this as kind of an opportunity to take another look at our portfolios and perhaps make some adjustments. And that is an exact point. So, Mark, you know, uh, Christmas Eve, we were sitting down and watching really what appeared to be a debacle. And since that day, we've uh, we've had eight straight weeks uh, of up market. And so, in fact, we've retraced nearly 19 percent, which has been a significant recovery. And I th- as Derek points out, I think people should take this time and take a look at their portfolio. Well, well no doubt, because in, in, the f- in the fourth quarter, specifically in December, you almost had this kitchen sink of bad news. You had all these things that were happening at once, and the markets reacted to that. And a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, probably had a pretty interesting ride in their portfolio in December. You get your December statement, you compare it to your September statement, and you say, what happened here? So I think right now for people, when we've had eight good weeks in a row and we've had some good news now, take this as an opportunity. Take this as an opportunity to go back, reassess your risk, think about how you felt in December when the markets were doing what the markets were doing because we have had the benefit of recovering a lot of that back and now would be the time to look at your true risk sentiment and how you feel about your portfolio, whether it's your 401k at work, whether it's your IRAs, your non-qualified accounts, put that all together in a household assessment and say, where do we feel about risk? Do we want to go, go on that ride again if we have volatility in these markets? That's a healthy exercise. And you look at uh, what could be happening in the markets, if you call it Mr. Market, and all of this negative news that we saw in the fourth quarter, well, we had some uh, positive news out of trade. It looks like the Federal Reserve has been benched here. Volatility is still there. And so what is driving all of this craziness in the market right now? 
I, I really believe it's it's these algorithms. You know, the algorithms are tuned to look at, say, things like crude oil. So you, you look at the chart of crude oil and the S&P 500, and they kind of mirror each other. So if the algorithms are viewing crude oil as a sign of, of a strengthening global economy, despite what we've heard recently, uh, that, that can fuel upside bursts of activity. I mean, we hear that somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of the trades that are placed on the exchanges these days are algorithmic driven. And we, you know, we have a- algorithms at Annex. We look at them. We pay attention to them. And and frankly, the, the, the thing that I'm most interested in right now is that fear and greed index, Mark, which we talk about a lot. You know, it, it bottomed out at two on Christmas Eve. That's the lowest reading I'd ever seen. And that's on a scale of zero to 100. And as of the close on Friday, it was all the way back to 70, which is a, a greed reading. So it, it, it kind of lends itself to just a, a more microscopic look at our portfolios and, and trying to decide what, what sectors are likely to outperform from here. You know, Derek, let me take some something away from that. So you talk about a two versus a 70. What does the listener take away from that conversation? What what does a 70 mean to you right now? What would you be doing if you were investing your own portfolio? Historically, when you see readings of 70 and higher on the fear and greed index, it's very hard for the market to sustain a durable advance from those levels historically. doesn't mean it can't happen. It just makes it less likely. So what I'd be looking to do is say, okay, are there some names in my portfolio that have lagged this rally that I feel feel the fundamentals are suspect? Well, perhaps I'd lighten that position. Derek, just hold right there. That's a good thought. And Danny, you're giving me a look like we have to go to break. Uh, we do. It's uh, 1012 at WTMJ. I want to mention Destination Retirement is coming up uh, Wednesday. It's our next one. It's at our Elm Grove location. Happens Wednesday. We get a little bit of room for that one. If you're listening in the Valley, uh, we've got one on Thursday, March 7th. You can go to AnnexWealth.com, click the Events button, and you'll see the entire schedule. Coming up next, we're going to talk about annuities. Also on the way, our planning team discusses different budgeting styles. That's still to come on Money Talk and Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. Money tips that don't cost a thing. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Know the difference. It's Money Talk, Team Tech Trust on WTMJ, AnnexWealth.com. During the break, one of you guys had an article and you said the cleanest piece of legislation I've seen. I want to know what this is. Yeah, oh, yeah. me too. <laughs> right. Me too. No, so there was this, you know, there's this hyper focus on what's happening, particularly with annuities, has certainly caught the ire of the self-regulatory organizations, FINRA and the SEC. And a lot of times, you know, and we're talking about annuities here, and when, when we talk about annuities, you know, we'll get an email from an insurance agent or two and somehow say that we're attacking them. And we've never done that. And I want to be clear about that. And let's talk about exactly what is happening and the reason why that is, it certainly gets a lot of attention, particularly from FINRA and the SEC. Something came out this week, Mark. It certainly did, but we usually, in, in the compliance world at least, there's a few compliance jokes. And one of the ones that I love well, I is they're crazy. Say, oh, oh, they're man. great. It's just as this Compli- is great theater. Get, hold on, everybody. Right. Hold this on, is awesome. Pull over. There's a compliance they, they, joke coming. Say, the joke goes, what do they do with bad insurance salesmen? And I don't answer, know. What do they do with bad insurance sales? They send them to Hawaii. So the, the idea is because... Well, the, now people don't get that. I'm sure. But the fact is, is that these things get sold. And that's what we've always had a problem with, is the way that they're sold sometimes. You have sales contests, and if you sell enough annuities, you get a free trip to Hawaii or whatever it might be. Those are the things that we were trying to get away from. We don't think the product is bad. We just wonder about the sales process. And that's what we've always had a problem with. So you think about the fiduciary rule. You go back all the way to 2010 and Dodd-Frank and, and the idea of 
putting a fiduciary standard in place for everybody who was going to act in the best interest of the people that they were selling products to. What happened to annuity sales? Plummeted because of the fact that the insurance companies were fighting with the DOL and with the courts about whether or not they were going to be subject to this fiduciary rule. Well, there, but there was, and let's be clear about this, there was some action in, in that area, and therefore the, they did plummet, right? But at the end of the day, the insurance agency, they, over, they defeated this bill. They sued the heck out of it because they went to the federal courts to say that it was going to be restraint of trade, that there were problems with the class action suit provisions of the DOL rule. In some ways, the, the insurance companies and the insurance salespeople saw the writing on the wall, that they figured when there was a fiduciary rule in place completely in 2016, that that was going to mean that they could no longer do the things that they had traditionally done, like sales contests, like sell proprietary products. And when you think about people's investment accounts, at least 70% of the, uh, the assets in the United States are in these qualified accounts in IRAs, in Roth IRAs, in 401k plans. When you think about prohibiting the sale of annuity in those contracts, it had the life insurance companies upset. Really? Really upset. So the DOL rule was what really was put in place in early 2015. And as you said, we saw annuity sales drop significantly. But what what did we just see in the second quarter of 2018? So then you look at what happens in March of 2018. In March of 2018, the Fifth Circuit Court does away with the DOL rule. They strike it down essentially. What happens to annuity sales? They skyrocket. 25% they're up in 2018 over 2017 because of the fact that 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 cloud of the DOL rule has gone away from the annuity salesman. So you're now looking at $60 billion, $60 billion per quarter in annuity sales in this country alone. So people are out there selling these things, and we're not saying don't buy an annuity. We're saying understand the contract that you're getting into. Understand how it works, what are the features, what are the benefits, what are the costs. If you understand all those things and you want to guarantee some income for yourself with some of your money, we think annuities have a place, but don't get oversold a contract. Go to somebody who's unbiased, who doesn't have a commission bias, who's not selling proprietary product, and somebody who's going to be able to act in your best interest, and it would be really nice if they put that in writing. So, by the way, the, the latest draft tries to standardize the language, and, and Mark, what, what does it say in the, that you feel that it's, that it's clear? Well, it says that anybody, whether you're an insurance agent, whether you're a broker-dealer, whether you're an investment advisor, you have to act in the best interest of the client. It seems common sense that that would be the way that the regulation should read. So how do you act in the best interest? Remember the best interest contract exemption and all that fancy language and way to get around the rule? The cleanest piece that we've seen so far is the Maryland piece, who seems to be a leader these days in regulation. And, And they're coming out and saying, if people who operate in our state, and this may happen in other states, we certainly have heard about it in New Jersey, Nevada, other states, that are adopting a fiduciary standard that is similar to what came out of the DOL, but a little cleaner while we wait for the SEC to take some final action on a fiduciary standard. In the meantime, we're proud to be a fiduciary. We've always been a fiduciary. We love that fiduciary standard of care. It's a no-brainer to act in people's best interests. We do it every day, and we hope that others will join us in that pursuit. And you can do that. You can start at AnnexWealth.com. You can get that free portfolio analysis. While you're there, also the free port or the annuity analysis as well. So if you got one of these things, you don't have to be a client of Annex. We'll look it over. We'll tell you exactly what it is because, as these guys have said, it's really, really complex stuff, the free annuity analysis. But, again, start at AnnexWealth.com. Location-wise, Elm Grove, Mequon, Lake Country, 
Appleton, a new location in Appleton, downtown at the Fister, and then Annex Everywhere. If you can hear this radio station, we can use simple screen share technology, uh, rock-solid, secure screen share technology, and we can deal with you with Annex Everywhere. But again, it starts at AnnexWealth.com. From simple investments to stock advice, back to Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Know the difference, Team Tech Trust? Why does the word budget make people tremble? Joining me, two people who make budgets work for them year-round. They are members of the planning team at Annex Wealth Management, but they have different approaches. In one corner, manager of financial planning and a CFP, Randy Winkler. Hello, Randy. Hi, Danny. In the other corner, senior financial planner and CFP and the contender, Ron Johnson. Hey, Ron. How are you doing, Danny? Not bad. Okay, I'm calling this Budget Royale. Keep it clean, gentlemen. Randy, please describe your method of working your personal budget. I know it's complex. Every dollar is a soldier. And if you don't give your soldiers a battle to fight, they're just going to wander off. So going back to 1991, I worked with a company where at the time in a different industry where the owner bought everybody Quicken software. And I started using budgeting. And since then, every penny that I've made and spent has been tracked in that. Maybe a little extreme for some people, but I know exactly where Why are you looking at going. Ron when you say that? Because <laughs> I think he has a different method for okay. doing this that uh, may have some merits, but probably not as many I as didn't mine. realize I was going up against soldiers, but let's continue. <laughs> Budgets get a bad rap. It's got a bad association. We need a new term. And I was thinking about this, and it needs some help from our marketing department. But I think of it like an empowerment plan. If there's something that I want to do, I direct my soldiers towards that. Like my wife and I, we love to take these elaborate vacations, and we're willing to give up on some other things. So we direct our soldiers towards our vacation budget. It might not go towards our dining budget. So we empower the things that we want to do by making conscious decisions on where that money goes. But you use spreadsheets. I use some, I've used different softwares over the years, and I have some that I like that I use very, now and I like a lot, where I can connect to all of my banks and credit cards and download my transactions automatically. But I also use some supporting spreadsheets for analyzing the data and going back and looking at where did we spend too much? What's the trend? You know, a fun day for me is a spreadsheet and a budget. So that's not like everybody, but. Oh, and that's party with you, cowboy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's a little trash talking, all right? That's fine. And this is your, your Saturday morning activity, right? Mm-hmm. So how much time do you spend? It depends. At the beginning of the month, I like to do I like to balance the budget. At the beginning of the month, I go back and look at the last month's budget and I chew everything up. So if we had a $150 dining budget and we spent 175, that 25 has to come from somewhere. But I probably was under in some other areas, so I'm not restricting myself from doing things, but I do want to pay myself first, put in the savings categories, the big targets, and then take care of the other things after that. During the course of a regular month, I may be touching it for maybe five, 10 minutes a week. That's Randy Winkler. That's his approach. Ron Johnson, how about you? I want to go back to what what you said, Danny, is that people are afraid of budgets. And they they really imply, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to have to watch what I spend and maybe even reduce what I spend. But really, I I think the way to wealth is from a top-down approach. So I'm going to direct money from my paycheck automatically to retirement, to emergency savings. In my case, things like life insurance, college savings. What's left is what I have to spend. For me, it's a lot simpler. It takes away some of the negative connotations of budgeting. 
So you don't have the soldiers. Randy's got the soldiers. No, I, I don't. My soldiers kind of wander where they need to. Okay, you're more of an amoeba. I, I think for both of us, what we're talking about is conscious spending. If you decide where you want your money to go, it's different than unconscious spending where it just kind of goes off. Everybody's had that at the end of the month. Where'd the money go? And if you can go back in my way, go back and look at it and say, well, wow, we ended up spending $200 on coffee at Starbucks. Okay, that's something that we could scale back on or eliminate. Then you consciously decide to spend it in an area of your choosing. Because if you don't decide, it's still going to happen. The money's not just going to pool up and accumulate. I'm more in the, the Ron world. I'm not looking at you any different, Randy, <laughs> because I would like your discipline. But how do you know how much you're going to spend on food in a month? Well, part of that is by the history. I can go back and take a look at what we spent last month and the previous month. And true story, our grocery budget has been going up. So I brought it up to my wife. She absolutely loves budgeting as much as I do, said with sarcasm. Um, but I said, look at the trend here. And she's like, well, we have been entertaining a lot over the holidays. So we have an explanation for that. But there's some areas where we might want to target. Are we getting skewed here. Can we buy some things in bulk? You have to have a base point. If somebody says, oh, we spend $5,000 a month on food and that's normal. Well, is it? Until you get a few months tracking and taking a look at that, you don't know what's normal and what isn't. Randy, what do you like about Ron's way? Well, I like the simplicity of it. My way, I know people aren't going to do. You've got to be pretty much on the pretty far down the geek side uh, to do what I do. But having a any kind of a system that works for you and then just continuing to enhance it and refine it. One of the things I love about working here is we've got a lot of money geeks that don't un only enjoy doing this for clients. They like doing it for themselves. So we're constantly hearing different strategies and techniques and software and tools that we can incorporate into our own system or evaluate and ignore it because it doesn't work for us. Ron, anything in the uh, Randy system you like? But I think Randy made a really good point. And, and the point is, is that no matter what you do, do something. So in planning, there's often two different paths to get to the same thing. It doesn't make one right or wrong. It just means that you should go down one of those two paths. And I think that's the point here is that the important thing at the end of the day is you've got money going to the right categories in your budget and your financial plan to achieve what you want to achieve. There's a saying that I like, a good plan today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. Find something that works for you. It works for you. So no matter what, planning is key to financial independence and the path to a great retirement. That's what we do at Annex Wealth Management. And this was a great example of thinking power at your fingertips when you are a client of Annex Wealth Management. So put a team to work. Get that free portfolio analysis today at AnnexWealth.com. Just click that Get Started button. Ron, thank you for your time. Thanks, Danny. Really appreciate it. And Randy, more great insight. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for being here. I'd like to declare victory. Nice. Okay. That would be interesting to talk to those guys because we talk a lot about the free portfolio analysis, and that is the first stop of your stuff is they take it. And it's not just this this conveyor belt where it's like we're just stamping stuff. We really look it over. We really analyze it. And then we come back to you with suggestions. And I think that is the difference. That is one of the differences that we talk about with Annex Wealth Management. You can start that at AnnexWealth.com. Get professional help with your portfolio. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Team Tech Trust. AnnexWealth.com is the website. Welcome back to the show. Here we are in the second half. Time for Ask Annex. You can submit any question that you've got for us at uh, AnnexWealth.com. Just look for the Ask Annex button. Let's start out with one from Bill. Bill asks, what's wrong with stock buybacks? Boy, that's been in the news a lot. What's wrong with stock buybacks? Well, you know, that's really an interesting qu question because it appears that it has turned into a political debate. Uh, I guess we can talk about the economics first and then follow with the second, but let's just explain what
with buybacks first? Well, buybacks essentially are, are, are run by the individual company where they just they decide that they want to just buy back and reduce the outstanding share count of their equity positions. And, and basically, that's been something that's been a, a bullish force for the stock market really since the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. And it accelerated this year because one of the key provisions in that tax bill was the ability of companies to repatriate funds that had been sitting in foreign banks. And some amount of that money has gone towards share buybacks. Well, it's interesting that the perception of the question is that it's a bad thing. Because I think when you think about the math, when you think about a company that's got a million shares outstanding at a dollar a share, and they buy half of them back, you got half a million shares out there at $2 a share. So theoretically, I mean, it's the same market capitalization of the company, but you have that opportunity for less shares. Yeah, but well, the issue was that, you know, these companies are getting, you know, tax benefits, you know, from a lower tax rate. And is it really helping America, you know, in terms of jobs and and employment prospects for people, for the company to just turn around and buy back shares, which are, you know, can artificially levitate the stock price, rewarding insiders who happen to be at that very company? Right. So you look at, you know, it was an exceptional year for the U.S. economy. Employment had a great year. Hourly earnings did go up, Derek, but I think that was the political debate, and that was the second half of the question, at least that I read it, and that's exactly right. I, you know, who are the beneficiaries of that? The people who own the shares or people who don't own the shares? I guess that's where they, this argument goes. In actuality, put some numbers to it. In the first three quarters of 2018, only a third of the funds that were repatriated actually went to buyback increases. That left over $400 million mark for other uses like capital expenditures, bonuses, M&A and paying down debt. Right, and that's that's exactly right, Mark. And uh, let's try to get a couple more questions. Sure. This one comes from Carl with bank mergers back in the news. What does this mean for bank stocks in general? Well, recently we had a very large regional bank uh, M&A transaction between BB&T and SunTrust, a case in which both stocks actually rose, which is very unusual when you see an M&A transaction. And I think, you know, what that says is that there are, there's going to be further consolidation. The number of regional banks has diminished greatly over the last 20 years or so. And we've actually liked financial stocks in our own portfolios from a tactical perspective because we feel deregulation has made the financial sector far healthier than it was before the crisis in 2008. Well, I think that's an excellent point because especially for these regional banks or smaller banks, deregulation or treating them differently will be a big deal about how they're efficient and profitable going forward. You know, when this all came out, there was a term systemically important financial institutions. That meant the too big to fail. And there might be a change in that definition, Derek, and that might then benefit the smaller banks. Well, it has. I mean, they've actually raised the limit at which point you're subject to those uh, regulatory restrictions because a lot of smaller banks, they don't have the, you know, the compliance department and the, and all the other rule setters within the, within the bricks and mortar of that institution to actually prepare all these documents. So it's made smaller banks more efficient. I'm sure it actually is an incentive for smaller banks to potentially merge with other smaller banks to, to maintain their ability to meet these requirements should their assets get above that level. I wonder if there's any way that we could reduce our compliance department. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking right at them. Money Talk Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. Here's one, one from Willem. Good German name. What's your opinion of mid-cap stocks? They've had a bad 12 months. Is there opportunity there? I've always liked mid-cap stocks for, for a couple of reasons. I actually managed a mid-cap fund at, at Strong years ago, but they, they kind of fall between the cracks. You know, most people allocate to large cap. Most people allocate to small cap. And mid-caps actually tend to be a little bit more advanced in terms of their management structures. They tend to be larger companies. They tend to be nit- niche, and they also tend to be focused purely on the U.S. So in many ways, you get kind of 
better management, better growth opportunities, and a, and a reasonable valuation because they aren't typically in most asset allocation plans. So when you're talking about mid-caps, you're talking about those companies that are capitalized between about 2 and $10 billion. And you think about things like the rising U.S. dollar, they, they tend not to sell as much internationally, so that rising U.S. dollar doesn't affect them as much. So that's one of the reasons you'd want to have some exposure to mid-caps. Derek, get up. We're going to slide Mandy Nowoshinsky right into your chair. Uh, yeah, you'll want to hear this one because there's been a lot of talk about uh, tax refunds and how they're down so far. Is that true? We put that to Mandy Nowoshinsky from our tax planning department. That's next on Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. Time is money. Make the most of yours with Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Know the difference? It's Team Tech Trusted Annex Wealth Management. We're a little bit closer to what I call the NFM zone, the No Fun Mandy zone at Annex Wealth Management. Hello, Mandy. Hi, Danny. Mandy Nowashinsky heads our tax team here at Annex, and like anybody involved in tax planning and preparation, I got to guess you're about to head into a long tax season. Is this like is this like anticipating giving birth or something? <laughs> All right. Well, I gave birth on April 17th once, so we're good. It's kind of like that. <laughs> that's 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 timing. We need to talk about the headlines that first started appearing this past weekend. About 10% of households filing their returns, their tax returns. The percentage of households getting tax refunds is similar to last year, but the average refund size down 8%. That was a big headline. People are freaking out. Well, what's the deal with that? Did You saw that too. I saw a lot of the headlines in the news articles, and it's kind of, kind of what we've been saying all year. You've been getting a little bit back each paycheck. So yes, your refund will be less because they adjusted the withholding tables a year ago now. So paychecks were a little higher. Maybe you got, you know, twenty, fifty dollars every notices other that. week. Right. I mean, really nobody notices. Very yeah. true. What they do notice is come tax time last year you got maybe two thousand, now it's down. You know, that's what people are gonna notice. What may have been forgotten is the little bit they got every other week through their paychecks. Well, can we go back and revote? <laughs> I guess we didn't. So that was the thing called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And I, I, I too, thought that it was going to be higher tax refunds. And I think it's still going to be like that. Yeah, for some people, they may be getting higher refunds. I think what some people are seeing is, you know, they're not getting a bigger refund like they thought they were. So they're either kind of staying where they were, maybe even getting a little bit less, but they're not getting that bump up that they may have thought they were getting because of the change in tax law. Okay, the IRS says the first batch of weekly data offers a very preliminary, unrepresentative look at what's happening to taxpayers. So, and I guess the people that file early kind of playing that game a little bit more? Right. Generally, the people who file early might have, might be anticipating larger refunds than people who are waiting. Because again, if you if you owe money to the IRS, you, you might not want to file right away. You want, you want to wait to the deadline to pay that in. So maybe people who are anticipating refunds are filing earlier and they're maybe seeing a small downtick in it. But as the IRS language says, a lot of generalities around, right. around their statistics. And you got to remember that with the tax law change, IRS is a little slower. Not all forms are ready. So we don't really know who's filing in relation to last year. It was interesting because the Treasury Department tweeted on Monday, said news reports on reduction in IRS filing and refunds are misleading. Refunds are consistent with 2017 levels and down slightly from 2018 based on a small initial sample only from a few days of data. So there you go. There's your stats, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know... Every individual is different. You've got to look at your situation alone and, you know, what do you want to get back or what do you what do you feel comfortable getting back versus what are you comfortable paying in every year and where you want target. And if you weren't, now is the time to review and adjust. You know, now is the time to, if you're 
traditional, let's say, W-2 employee, go back to your employer and update your withholding if you want a little more withheld to get a little bit larger of a refund or vice versa. Too much withheld, you can lower it and get a little bit more back now. So the Tax Policy Center, you know who they are? Yes, I do. They say about two-thirds are getting tax cuts under 2018 under the law. Six percent are paying more. But there's a tax cut and then there's a tax refund. Those are two different things. Very different things. The tax refund is what you get when you file your tax return. The tax cut is your overall. So if you look at what you paid in for 17, look what you pay in for 2018 and see, did it go up? Did it go down in relation to how much your income went up or down? That's the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. That's what that's referring to. But the refund, again, that's just come tax time. Do you have to pay in? How much are you getting back? What's going into your bank account and how large is it? One CPA to a big radio audience. Can you maybe do some of your your sisters and brothers a a break, a solid? And what should everybody do when they're going to bring their stuff into their tax preparer? Is there anything that we can do so people don't lose their minds? (laughs) Make sure you have everything you had last year. So if you had a W-2 from an employer last year, make sure you have it again this year or you made a note why you don't have it. Or if you have another one, maybe a little explanation around why you have another one or any changes, basically, because most CPAs are going to look at last year's. What did you have last year? Do you have it this year? And where are the changes and why were there changes? Manny Nowashinsky, tax planner at Annex Wealth Management. Good luck. Thanks. Don't settle for less. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Know the difference? Team Tech Trust. This is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. It is the 16th, Saturday morning. Thanks for riding along with us. I'm Danny Clayton. Mark Oswald is here. Derek Felsky and Dave Spano. And it's back, huh? The old wall of worry. Did well, it ever go away? Well, it's it's always been there. And this, this market has certainly gone up on it. It's been an unloved bull market for nearly 10 years now. But we did have this proverbial wall of worry. And everything that in the in the kitchen sink was thrown at it in the fourth quarter. And a lot of this has begun to mitigate. And at least we did put some light on it, Derek. But, you know, what we're looking at right now is a consensus view that the market has maybe priced everything in. I think there's another view out there as well. No, there is. I mean, for example, a lot of people speak about the longevity of the bull market, that it's one of the longest in history. Now, you know, you can almost argue that the bull market ended almost in some areas like small caps and international stocks. But the fact that it's, we've been going up basically for 10 years causes some to think the end is near. And it's very possible because of the magnitude of that recovery from 2008, 2009, not being as strong as you typically see, that we could be more towards the middle innings of this business cycle and not the late innings. What do you think, Derek, about what ends a bull market? Usually it is a misstep by the Fed. And, you know, we're looking at where the Fed's at right now. We had. You know, there were people talking about the dot plot for 2019 and four rate raises. Now the chances are pretty nil that there's even going to be any rate raise at all and maybe a rate cut. Who knows? But the fact of the matter is, is that the Fed kind of changed their tune back in January. So when you think about the real Fed funds rate, that number's pretty small. Right. It's roughly 25 basis points currently. And in the past, you haven't seen a recession until the real Fed funds rate, which is the Fed funds rate minus the rate of inflation, right. until that got north of 2%, you know, 200 basis points. So we're basically seven rate hikes away from reaching that level. Now, you could argue the economy is a little bit more sensitive to higher interest rates than, had, than it had been in the past. Uh, but basically, the economy is in, on pretty sound footing. And the only thing that's really been holding it back, in my opinion, is uncertainty about trade. 
Well, the, the global economy, for sure. And I just want to come back to that point. We looked back at the last eight recessions, and your point exactly, we have not seen a recession happen until we saw those numbers. So let's go back to slowing global economy. And it's not just China that we, and there's a lot of eyes on China, but that's not the only concern. There's certainly things to look at in the European Union. Yeah, the European Union has been weak on certainty about Brexit. We see Italy is in a recession. Italy's the third largest economy in the EU. Germany has shown some disappointing results recently. But we're also seeing fiscal measures being taken in many of those countries as well as in China. So perhaps we're at a growth lull globally, but I'm not so sure we're going to you know, have the kind of weakness overseas that will affect a U.S. economy that derives 70 percent of GDP from consumer spending. So when you think about the contagion effect, right? I mean, does the U.S. follow the rest of the world into a recession? Historically, that just doesn't happen because of the factors that you're pointing out. Well, it's actually the U.S. is the one that leads the rest of the world into a recession. And we don't think that's happening right no, now. No, we do not. And it's, again, an opportunity in my mind to sort of, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff and focus on fundamentals and where there are strengths and pockets of innovation within our economy, both on a tactical and a strategic portfolio basis. And again, you know, we talk about this wall of worry, and, and we are seeing that CEO confidence, uh, chief executive officer confidence, has decreased. And when that happens, you start to see a mitigation of capital expenditures. And then we talked about what could happen with President Trump, and those odds have decreased that he's going to run into some significant legal peril. And all of this goes into what go- happens going forward. The international economy is going into that, in that, into that conversation. And if you're listening to this today, you look at uh, the S&P 500 at 2770. There were some people who thought that we could get to 3000 on the S&P this year, but there's a lot of support below this. And so maybe about 7 8% below this might seem to be the risk. Uh, from this point, Derek. And so if you're listening to this, what do you do with your portfolios right now? I think what you do, you know, one of the, we have lots of great tools at Annex. One of them is our, our rebalancing tool. And, you know, on a, on a fairly frequent basis, we run a, a, a check on our portfolios to see whether our asset allocations have, have gotten out of line. And what most people forget is 90% of the volatility mark in their portfolio is due to the equity positions within it. And when you see the equity market run ahead, so for example, this week, the S&P was up 2.5%. The bond index, which is a bond benchmark, was flat. So people's stock allocations got bigger. So I think it's at times like these that you look for opportunities to perhaps take a little bit of money off the table. I'm not saying go short or be negative. I'm just saying reduce risk a little bit uh, because that's the whole idea is good risk-adjusted returns. Well, and, and on top of that, I think you're looking at reassessing your risk again because we have had some gains. It's pure math. If your stock portfolio is exceeding your bond portfolio, you're getting out of whack. Take a look at your risk. Take a look at your portfolio. If you do nothing else this weekend, think about how you're going to schedule some time to get that done with a qualified advisor. And that can be Annex Wealth Management. You can start at AnnexWealth.com. You'll see a Get Started button. You can do a couple of things there. Get a free portfolio analysis is where our team looks over everything you've got. It's unbiased. I mean, we've it's it's just unbiased. And and you've heard our planning team a little bit earlier. They're thinkers and doers. They're really, a, it's a great team. They'll give that back to you, and you can make your decision. Otherwise, a free portfolio analysis for the annuity as well. If you've got an annuity and you're not sure exactly what it does, uh, we can do that as well. But again, start at AnnexWealth.com. Also sign up for Axiom, which is our free weekly newsletter. Location-wise, all local, Elm Grove, Mequon, Lake Country, Appleton, downtown at the Pfister, and, of course, Annex Everywhere. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a week. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Good Karma Brands Milwaukee, LLC.